session with Dr. Farid Hulakwi. Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Farid Hulakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Uh, on Instagram Live, so no calls today, but you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Uh, before I get started, this past Saturday, I announced it on my show last week or both shows, I uh, did my first talk or room on Clubhouse. It was a new experience for me, but I enjoyed it and will likely do it again this Saturday morning, 10 a.m. Los Angeles time in the morning. So you can check that out. I'll post it on my uh, social media for updates on the topic and things like that. But uh, another way to get to talk about ideas, but also learn from others as well. So look forward to making that more of a regular thing. Let's get into the books of the week. Speaking of regular things, uh, this week's book of the week is The Hidden Spring by Mark Solms. The Hidden Spring, A Journey to the Source of Consciousness. And uh, I am very, very excited to read this book. It was um, recommended to me or even brought to my attention, I didn't know about it, uh, by Ali Reza. Thank you, Ali Reza, um, for making this recommendation. When I read the description, it sounded very interesting, but uh, as the subtitle says, A Journey to the Source of Consciousness, Mark Swams is a neuroscientist and he presents, apparently, obviously I haven't read it yet, some new ideas and thoughts on consciousness. Uh, and as the inside of the book says, a revelatory new theory of consciousness that returns emotions to the center of mental life. And so to me, that sounds very exciting. So looking forward to reading this book, The Hidden Spring by Mark Solms, sharing it with you on next week's show. Uh, again, a big thank you to Ali Reza for that recommendation. All right, let's get to the book of the week from last week that I'll be talking about tonight. It is The Practice Shipping Creative Work by Seth Godin. The Practice, Shipping, Creative Work by Seth Godin. Uh, this book was recommended to me by my brother Parham. He actually really likes Seth Godin. I heard him talk about him many times. And um, so because of that, I wanted to check it out. I really did enjoy this book. Um, I really like his style. He writes in a very, actually, if you read the book, and I think it makes it actually easier to read. There's all these short sections. No section, I think, is more than maybe two or three pages. And they're actually numbered throughout. So when you get to the end of the book, you're at section 164. There are a few different chapters, but um, yeah, it's split up in a way that actually makes it in these bite-sized pieces. But anyway, the practice, shipping creative work. Really, the book is a wonderful way of encouraging anyone to get work done and to get to work, essentially. Something that almost all of us struggle with or challenge uh, have a challenge of creating as much work as we'd like. And I definitely could relate to that myself. And so there was a lot in this book that was very much personal to me to, to think about and look at, but that I really enjoyed. And so it's essentially encouraging the reader, anyone who looks at this to just get to work. And that itself is what you need to do, not just wait and prepare. Uh, of course, you need to do some of that, but not put all these excuses that we all can do that get in the way of getting work done. And even he does 
talk the talk. He's, uh, or I should say, he doesn't just talk the talk. He also walks the walk. He's written many books and he also blogs every day. So every day he writes on his blog. Um, and as he talked about in the book, of course, half of them are below average compared to the rest. So they're not all going to be good or a lot of them won't be good, but he keeps working at it. Uh, something that I'll, I'll talk about um, as I discuss the book some more. So I highly recommend the book. I think it's a great book for any of us because we all tend to get in the way of ourselves for different reasons. And many of them he does explore throughout the book. Um, Another thing I liked is that throughout the book, he has this theme of being generous, that when we're creating some kind of work, there is a generosity or there should be this generosity of spirit that is motivating what we're doing. We're creating something to share and we are creating something that we actually will uh, take responsibility of, meaning that we'll take the ownership of. I have created this, which uh, he talks about that type of a theme throughout the book as well, Uh, that we have to take the ownership that I have created something and I am now sharing it with you, whoever that you is. Uh, And again, the book is The Practice by Seth Godin. Um, And he does dispel some myths. I like how he kind of demystifies. And uh, and maybe I should take a step back even in being creative or he talks about art. Um, He doesn't mean necessarily art that everyone has to be a singer or a painter. It could be in almost anything that you do, but especially things like writing, speaking, uh, many other types of things. There is creative things that we can do, but most of us are, are holding ourselves back. Even the epigraph at the beginning of the book, I really like. The magic of the creative process is that there is no magic. Sometimes we are waiting for that magic moment, that inspiration, you know, that we shouldn't work until we really are feeling it or feeling like it. And so he demystifies that, that it's not that there's this moment that inspiration is going to hit you and all of a sudden everything will come out of you and you'll be creative. You have to take action in order to make that happen. There isn't some special magical moment. We have to create uh, those magical moments. And even about creativity, um, there was something I really liked. Uh, one of the sections, section 11, is titled, Creativity is an action, not a feeling. And I think that that makes a lot of sense. We have to keep creating, taking the actions to create. And, and through that, we will learn more, grow more, and create better things. But we have to take action, not wait for the moment to then be creative. We have to create even the moment, and then we will create more. So I like that mindset because um, I was even thinking, I talked to a few people about the book during the week and about doing my show. You know, he talks about just doing work on a regular basis every day, if it can be, or setting certain timelines and constraints for yourself and how that actually would, will encourage you and free you to do even more. But even doing this show, if I really wanted to do the best book review I could do. So, you know, we talk about perfect being the enemy of good. And he talks about that theme too in the book, that when we try to make something perfect or we think we have to make it perfect, we end up usually doing nothing because nothing can be perfect and and we're putting our pressure on ourselves. But using that type of a mindset, if I tried to create the perfect book review for one of my, um, one of these books, I would probably have to spend months or a month, let's say, put lots of time, do so many things. Maybe it would be better. You know, the book reviews I do, I hope they are good and I think they are good, but I know they can be better. But I actually think there's something good, even for me as the person has to create this 
program and also as someone who's learning from the process that I have to do it every week. Or if you told me, and even that have to is something I obviously, that constraint is something I put on myself, but when I'm happy that I have. Um, or if you told me, okay, hey, do a book review, let us know when you're ready. I would maybe spend weeks and months thinking about it, being nervous. Oh, maybe it's not good enough. Let me wait. Let me think about it some more. It always can be better. You know, all these different things I could tell myself and I might not ever actually take the action. I might just always be in that process, think I'm being productive, to think that I'm doing something good. Um, but really, it's actually getting in the way and I could create much better work. So uh, the mindset he has and even the way he writes a lot of short sections, even a lot of short sentences, they're longer ones, but there is a concise way. And it is kind of, I think to me, when I was reading the book, you get this feeling of just like, get work done get to work, get started. There are so many things that will stop you um, or tell you you shouldn't start yet, but you need to go forward. Uh, he even talks about the imposter syndrome, something I thought was interesting. So imposter syndrome is this feeling we can have, especially when we're starting something new. So let's say, for example, someone is starting law school. They might think, okay, everyone here is smarter than me. Everyone here is more qualified than me. I shouldn't be here. Even sometimes there's a sense that maybe there's been a mistake. And if the admissions committee found out that I was in here and I shouldn't be, they would actually have me leave. And we feel like an imposter, like we are fake when we are there. And it's a very common experience people can have in many areas of life. We find it a lot, for example, in new students and a new type of a program. But people have this experience very often when doing anything. Even let's say you're someone who wants to give talks on something, you might think, I'm not good enough to give talks. Look at the other people who are giving lectures and talks, but probably you're more ready than you think. And you have to work at it and you'll get better. But this sense that you are an imposter um, is something that we tell ourselves. And as he says, it's almost a healthy thing in a way. I thought that was interesting, the way he presented it. It's not something negative. It means you're doing something new. He didn't exactly say that, but that's the one of the messages I got from it. If you're doing something new and other people have been doing it for a while, of course you're going to feel like you're an imposter, that it's something new for you, that it shouldn't be something you think you're good at yet. It doesn't mean you don't belong. It doesn't mean that you can't do it. But when we're trying something new, that feeling could be a natural thing that comes up. So we don't have to resist it or uh, definitely we don't have to listen to it as if telling us we're not ready, but it doesn't mean it's going to just go away. But again, just go forward anyway. Do the work and see what happens. So I thought that was a very interesting perspective on the imposter syndrome. It comes up very often in therapy when I work with clients either applying to school, starting a new school, starting a new job, starting a new career, this feeling that maybe I'm an imposter. When really a few things are true. One is the way you're idealizing everyone is not true, that they know so much, that they are so prepared, that they are somehow just naturally gifted in that type of work. That's not true. And also, you're probably selling yourself short as well. Um, another thing that happens is if you enter law school, since I use that example, people don't necessarily yell that they're anxious, but they're holding it inside. But all those first year students are anxious, but they look calm to you. So you think you must be the only one, but really everyone's a little bit nervous, but that's okay. Um, so again, it's a lot about getting the work done. A whole section of the book is on generosity uh, and having that mindset. And I think that's that's very important because 
it should be the way we approach our work. And when we look at even our lives, one of the things that can make it meaningful is if we feel we are contributing something to make the world better. And it doesn't have to be through our work, but even better if it is. But that can give us a sense of meaning and contentment that could be one of the most important things we have in life. But I think having that generous mindset is very important. And when you actually think about what that means, so if we have, we all have these gifts and these uh, talents that could be developed into skills or abilities that we could share with the world. And now we tell ourselves, who am I to share this? You know, even he says, you have the right to remain silent, but I hope you won't. So you might think, oh, maybe I shouldn't say anything. Maybe it's being egotistical if I think I have something to say or share this gift in some way. Maybe I should just hold it to myself. Who am I to do that? Keep it to myself. And that's one way of looking at it. But really, we can also flip that and think you have something to share that will benefit other people. So maybe coming to an extreme example, let's say there's a surgeon and she says, oh, who am I to perform these surgeries or I don't want to be greedy or selfish or put the spotlight on me. So let me just not do the surgery. As a result of that, someone might die. So it's not that the doctor is being selfish by acting. They would actually in a way be almost selfish or doing a wrong thing by not acting, by holding on to that gift that they have would be selfish. What would be generous and kind and more noble is actually to share that gift, share their uh, skill in helping someone else, possibly saving their life or making their life better. So what I tell people is that not that you just, you know, when we say try to meet your potential, no one's going to be 100% of their potential, but try to work hard to be the best that you can be. Usually we think that means do that for yourself, become the best version of yourself because you deserve it, which is true. I think that's a part of it. A big part of it is you deserve to be the best version of yourself. But the other way of looking at it is that you owe it to the world to become the best version of yourself. You can help many people. You can change the way things are done. You can change people's lives in different ways. And I know that sounds dramatic, but even in small ways, we all have the abilities and capabilities and we can develop the skills to help many people. And we owe it to the world to do that. It's not just do it because it's nice and it feels good. Do it because if you don't think about actually that you're depriving people of something. You have a medicine that can help someone and you're keeping it to yourself. Is that being kind? Is that the noble thing to do? Absolutely not. So I really appreciated that theme throughout the book of being generous or having that mindset of generosity when it comes to our work, that we're actually trying to create something to give to others. It's not something about us. And I might touch on this some more later about looking at success and looking at our intentions in general. And that if we flip it rather than from what can I get from me and change it to what can I give to the world, it leads to better results, but it also leads to a more fulfilling and meaningful life and experience for us. But let's go to a commercial break. But after the break, I'll continue discussing the book, The Practice by Seth Godin, The Practice Shipping Creative Work. We'll be right back. Continuing the discussion on the book, The Practice, Shipping Creative Work by Seth Godin. I think a great book for anyone who, which I think is pretty much everyone, 
who has a hard time getting work done or knows they can get more work done. He does a great job of demystifying some aspects of creative, be, being creative or creativity, uh, of doing work, which really can help you get things going. So I really recommend the book to really anyone. It's not just for artists, the way I was saying before. It's really for all of us in creating um, more work. And so he talks also about how there's a difference between talent and skill. And really, talent doesn't get you very far. Um, there's this myth we have about talent that people like, I think, in some ways, where we like thinking of someone as just a natural. Oh, you know, he or she was just born to do this, and it just comes easy for them. And I think there's a few reasons for this. One is we like the idea of making gods out of people. Sometimes this gives us a nice feeling to, to elevate people or admire people in that way. But another thing that we like about making people just naturally gifted and that, oh, they don't have to even work hard, they're naturally gifted, is that it takes us off the hook. So you see someone that's really good at something, you're like, oh yeah, he or she, they were just born to do it. That's it, they were just born. And I wasn't, so I can't do it. Whatever I am born to do, I'm gonna do that. When the truth is, no, they probably worked very hard to get to where they are at or to develop the level of skill that they have. They weren't just born with it. They weren't just naturally gifted and some genius. They've had to work hard. And that can be hard for us to accept and acknowledge because it's reminding us that we need to work harder, that we can be whatever it is we're admiring. If we worked harder, we could get there. And I think that's a very important point to keep in mind. It's not just about talent and that's it. Even I think sometimes, you know, we say, oh, someone will say, do you want, are you ready to do this? And they say, oh, I was born ready. And, you know, sometimes we say it in a, a cocky way or a confident way, or it's like a playful way. But even for myself, like I really do enjoy speaking. And I think I've, I'm pretty good at it but and I do feel at times it's natural for me and I think some of it I did have an ability but it's also been thousands of hours now that I've been studying and talking and hearing people talk and feedback and all those kinds of things that has helped me develop more of that skill and I still have a lot more I'd like to develop but it's not just by chance or luck that someone does anything it's the work that goes into it and so now it might feel natural to me to talk, uh, talk about issues, talk about ideas, but it doesn't mean it was born natural to me. It's that I've done it a bunch of times that now I'm very comfortable in this space, comfortable doing this. I've worked on the skills or I've had to go through the process that it feels natural. But unfortunately, when we say I was born ready or I was born you know, to do this, it gives the notion that, oh, it was just natural. There was no hard work or practice that went into this. It was just they were born to do this. So I think that could be a, a big misconception that we have because it, it's a few things. One is it lets us off the hook. The second is if we start doing something and it's not very good, we think that means I'm just not born to do this when usually it means you have to work at it because anyone who became good at anything at the beginning wasn't very good at it. And I think that's so, so important to keep in mind. So it's easier to tell ourselves, oh, either I got it or I don't because we're off the hook. But it could be also exciting to think there's this possibility and prospect that I can do more than I thought I could do. Even actually, he um, shares this study that was done by uh, Daniel Chambliss on uh, swimmers. And so they're looking at what 
differentiates like the Olympic level, high level swimmers and the ones that are not that elite. And so, you know, we think I remember even with uh, Michael Phelps and it did seem like he had some things with his body that were a little bit different. Uh, but it wasn't just that. Michael Phelps didn't become this Olympic level, you know, one of the best swimmers, maybe the best, I don't really know, of all time because he just had a freak body. He had to work incredibly hard, uh, as did all of them. But, you know, they're saying it wasn't that the elite level ones actually practiced even more. So there was no quantitative difference in training um, and there was no talent differentiation. It wasn't something you were just born with. The two things that were different was one skill, and by that it meant that they, the good ones or the elite ones, they did their strokes differently, they do their turns differently, and these are learned and practiced skills. So it was um, something that they practiced that they got good at. It wasn't just they were naturally good at it. And the second thing was their attitude. Uh, as it says here, the best swimmers bring a different attitude to their training. They choose to find delight in the parts that other swimmers avoid. So the hard work that goes into it, it doesn't mean they lie to themselves and they say it's something they enjoy, but they can make it more enjoyable or less painful to do those parts, which makes it easier for them to keep working at it. So it's the skill and the attitude and skill is not something, it's not talent. It's not just innate. Skill is something that you develop. And that's something we all have to do don't want to talk too much about myself, but since I have and related to this, even I've been very lucky to do this show now for over seven years and just the process of doing these shows over and over again has made me better at public speaking or better at speaking in general. And if someone asks me, how can I get better at speaking? I would say, obviously read a lot, study a lot, watch a lot of people, but also just keep doing it. Even if you had to go in your room and just start talking about different topics for certain periods of time, just do that every day or every week to work on that skill. And reading this book, it definitely um, made that more clear to me, the benefit of that, or I think he explains it in a very good way. This whole section is called Earn Your Skills. You're not just naturally gifted. You're not just you have it or you don't. You have to work hard. You have to work consistently. And that, in essence, is part of the practice that the title of the book is. You just keep working and you keep creating things. As he says, shipping creative work, it means you have to keep shipping. It means like getting it out. You have to keep creating and putting it out there. And that's the way you get better at anything. And I thought that was um, really wonderful. And, you know, going back to, uh, you know, creativity, he also talks about the muse. And um, the muse, you know, that's like the inspiration for art. And we've seen this a lot throughout history. You know, I think even in Shakespeare, there's the muse in one of, I don't know which one. So please, someone could correct me about that or uh, inform me on that. But we always hear this theme of the muse or, you know, all of a sudden, um, someone, a whole song came to someone and they expressed it. And they'll even say, it wasn't me. It was kind of this muse came to me and, and just, you know, came out of me. And, and I get that sense. I think it's actually more like 
it's part of your unconscious, but that means you've probably been working at it in some way more than you think, or you might not be aware of it. That's why it feels like it's not part of you because a lot of it's unconscious, but it doesn't mean necessarily it had to have come from somewhere else. And I know this can bring up issues related to the supernatural and God and all those things. But I think oftentimes what's really happening is just something within ourselves that is that is coming out. Um, but people sometimes think, again, it's another way of delaying taking action. I have to wait for my muse. I haven't been inspired. And so I'm just going to sit and wait and live my life. And when the inspiration strikes, then I'm going to produce this art or release something. And he says, in a way, we almost have it the other way around. And he talks about this in relation to the concept of flow. So as you might know, flow is when we get into that state where we're using all of our mental resources, all of our, it could be physical too, but we're using everything to such a degree that we can kind of lose ourselves within what we're doing in a way that feels very good. We lose our sense of self, we lose our sense of time, and we're in a way in harmony with what we're doing to such an extent what we experience a state of flow, which feels really good. And so he says flow is the result of effort. So it's not that flow is going to show up. You have to do work for flow to show up. And then he says, the muse shows up when we do the work, not the other way around. Set up your tools, turn off the internet, and go back to work. And I really like that, and it's kind of practical there, too, because you can all, we've probably all been there. You're writing a paper, an essay, working on something, and you're like, oh, you know, I'm not really feeling it. Maybe I should wait to, like, get that inspiration. Let me go on, you know, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, whatever your choice of distraction is, because I'm not, I'm not feeling it right now. And those are excuses. These are things that we just tell ourselves, because really what you're feeling, it's not that you're not feeling the muse. It's that you're probably feeling anxiety. He even talks about how writer's block, he says it's made up. It's a myth. There's a whole section called no such thing as writer's block. And so he thinks it's something we kind of tell ourselves, well, I'm just not feeling it. I need to take a break uh, from writing because I'm just not in the right headspace. And he says that's something we make up or we use as an excuse. And, and I think that is true. We come up with these reasons why we're not ready because it's always scary to do the work or it can be that all these anxieties come up from the imposter syndrome, which I talked about already, to the fear of failure, which can be very powerful. What if I make this thing? What if I produce something and it's not good or it's bad or it's embarrassing or whatever it might be? There's also fears of success or what if it does go well and things that that could, cre could create. And so the most comfortable thing to do, unfortunately, and what we choose to do is usually choose the most comfortable thing. It's usually to do nothing, not to create something in the moment. And so unfortunately, we tend to go there. And but we have to become aware of that, that we choose that comfort, that it's a lot scarier to create something um, than to do nothing at all. And that's one of the biggest issues we have to deal with throughout our life is getting out of that comfort zone, which means doing what feels good, which is usually nothing, and making ourselves uncomfortable. And that's actually when the good work and the good art comes is we have to be a little bit uncomfortable. We have to push ourselves to the boundary of where we feel comfortable. That's usually actually, I think, where the magic happens. But again, it's not that it happens accidentally. You have to work and push yourself to get yourself to the space where you can create something better. And it only is through your work that you get there, not some type of an accident of how we get to that place. You know, he also talks about criticism in the book. 
And uh, in an interesting way, you know, he talks about there's good critics and bad critics or generous critics, I think he calls them and bad ones. But uh, a generous critic kind of knows what they're talking about. They've taken the time and they understand it and their feedback can be very helpful. But there's also critics who are kind of it's useless to look at. And he cites a book. I forgot which book it was. And he says, if you go on the Amazon reviews, you'll see one two-star review where the person says there was not enough science in the book. And then you go to another two-star review and the person says there's too much science in this book. And so it's this kind of, you know, if you look at some of this feedback, as he says, maybe the book isn't for you. And that was an interesting thing for me to realize. Um, he does talk about how you need to know your audience or who is this, whatever you're producing, who is it for? And realize it's not going to be for everyone. And really nothing good can be for everyone as far as when we talk about art or something you're, let's say, talking about or producing. It's virtually impossible for it to actually be meaningful and good if it's going to be for everyone. Because if it's for everyone, that means you're creating something cookie cutter or that already fits into the boxes that everyone already experiences or something that's not going to be adding something. But if you really want to create something meaningful, good and new, it has to be something that not everyone is going to like. And you have to accept that and be ready for that. So he does talk about being aware of what type of criticism you do listen to and oftentimes not listening to it. And I've had that experience too. Sometimes people will, I do try to at times read comments, people write about me uh, or write to me or write comments on uh, the, the shows I've done. And sometimes they're helpful. Sometimes they say something that when I think about it now, it was just really off and maybe it meant either my type of show or me is just not for them but I might have taken it more personally, and that can be an issue. And he talks about not taking uh, the result so personally. Uh, and that's the whole thing about the practice is you just keep creating work. And one of the risks we take is that we don't know the result, but we have faith and trust that doing the work is good and likely it will create some good results, but we can't be attached to that. And I thought that was an interesting mindset that just keep working and producing. Don't be so fixated on the results. Yes, you pay attention to them. That can be a form of feedback, but don't get so fixated on that. So I had to think about that too. And even being mindful of at times, I think when I was, especially earlier on, I might still have some of this, that when you, when I was producing the show or making the shows, I think I was trying to make sure everyone liked it or that no one disliked it or would be upset by it or didn't think I was saying something good. And, and I've realized more and more that that's not possible, especially if you want to say something meaningful. If you want to say something that's making some kind of an advancement, if it's creative, it has to be different from what is already out there, which means almost by definition, at least some people won't like it because people don't like something new or different or when you're changing something. And you have to be ready for that and accept and acknowledge that. And that if you're creating something with the intention that everyone should like it, you're probably not really trying to do something as important or meaningful as you can do. You're trying to actually come from a space of, I don't want it to fail or I don't want anyone to not like it rather than creating the most authentic or real thing for yourself. And so I thought that mindset was interesting too. So the book, really there's so many pieces of wisdom throughout the book that he um, talks about. And I think overall, it's a very good book to help anyone get yourself to work and, and break some of those mental blocks. There are mental blocks, not the sense of like writer's block that you just can't write, but there's blocks we put in front of ourselves that we can unblock. Uh, and I think he does a great job of demystifying the process of 
creating work, um, making it a little bit easier to get started, but reminding us that the most important thing is to start working, keep working, be consistent, earn your skills, get better at what you're doing. And over time, you'll, you'll see that it'll have a positive impact. Again, we're not attached to the outcome of any one thing we do, but we do have faith that if we keep practicing, if we keep working, it will lead to improvements over time. So that was The Practice Shipping Creative Work by Seth Godin. Let's go into our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Um, So I was talking about the book, The Practice by Seth Godin, and I wanted to continue on this theme. I talked about how I I did like a lot about the book, but I really did like how he mentioned how creating work with others, sharing it is generous, and we should have that type of mindset. And I think that's very important for us to recognize that anything we do, everything we do, um, we have to look at the intention. You know, sometimes we'll say, oh, I did something uh, and it was good, so you can't be upset about it. Or it's a good thing to buy someone something so no one could say something about it. Or last week I talked a few times about, well, it was just a joke, so it doesn't matter. We always want to go a little bit deeper and look at the intention because that is very important. And it could really make a huge difference between what we're doing if it was really something good and noble or actually if it had a more negative intention. Um, And so I, I mentioned this earlier, this notion of success. And I've thought for a few years now, and I've talked about this, that we have the way we measure success almost backwards. So what we tend to do, if I tell you, close your eyes and tell me, you know, you probably don't have to close your eyes, who's someone who's successful? You know, people will say Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, probably some other maybe celebrities or athletes. And usually what people are saying, especially when you say, let's say, uh, Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, we're talking about people, let's say, who have a lot of money or a lot of fame and attention and notoriety. What we're focusing on is what they have gotten in their life. How much money do they have? Um, How much fame do they have? It's about the things they have received, they have gotten. But I think that's backwards. The way we should measure success is the other way around. Not what you have received, but what you have given to the world is how we should measure success. And of course, a lot of times there will be overlap. People who have maybe given a lot to the world can make a lot of money and get fame, but it doesn't tend to be the way we think about success. If I tell you, you know, quote unquote, successful businessman, you just imagine a rich person and that's he's already good in your eyes or for a lot of people in their eyes, they measure success in that way. What did you get? But I think that, again, is the wrong way of looking at it. We should all strive to be someone who has given a lot to this world. And so because of that, this also relates to fame itself. So um, people want to be famous, and actually they've done studies. I've heard about it on preteen or teenagers, um, but I'm sure it's actually even true for a lot of adults now. If you ask them, what do they want more than anything in the world for themselves, they tend to rate being famous over being happy even, which sounds kind of crazy because really probably they think if I'm famous, I'll be happy. But the desire to be famous is so strong that people prefer that over everything. I'd rather be famous um, rather than anything else. And I think obviously that might have always been true, but I think it's even more true in today's day and age with the internet and social media. People can become famous for almost doing anything 
almost doing um, nothing really. And that's what we see a lot. And that's what a lot of people think. Well, why shouldn't I be famous? This person is famous for, you know, something happened to them or that person did this or they make some funny videos and they're not even really that funny, but now they're super famous. So I should be famous. I want to be famous. And I think likely it's coming from some desire of being um, liked and loved, something we feel inside ourselves that we're not enough. But if everyone likes me and loves me, then I'm going to feel good. And as we know, even when that happens, we don't feel good. But there's that feeling that it'll feel good or feel so good when everyone likes me and knows me. And I have a certain number of followers on uh, social media and people are talking about me, then life is going to be good. And so I don't actually have necessarily an issue with wanting to be famous to a degree, but I would want people to want to be famous for doing something meaningful and good. So if you say, I'd like to become well known because I have created some medicine that saves people's lives, I've given something that to me is different. It's understandable. We all might like the feeling. Hopefully that's not what's driving you, but there's a big difference between I want to be famous, which is the way most people are thinking about it. Imagine being famous. You get all this money, all this attention. You go places, people give you stuff for free. The intention or the mindset is about what I'm going to get. Oh, think about all the stuff I'll get when I'm rich and famous. I'll get all the things I could ever want. But I think if we flip it that I want to be well-known because I've contributed so much that people will know of that, that to me is different. Again, it should not be the reason you're doing it. It should not be the uh, motivation, I would hope. But I think that's a very different type of a thing to want to give something and to be well-known. And so we can also look at, of course, not just about fame. That's one aspect of it. But when we look about at living a successful life. I would hope that we think about it in the sense of what can I give to the world? And so even like we can go something like a singer, which might seem like, oh, they want to be famous. But to me, there could be very different intention between one person who says, I want to be a famous singer because they think, oh, think about again, the money, the fame, the people that are attracted to me and everything is going to be so cool for me in my life. I want to be famous singer for that. There's that person. There's also a person that says, I think I can create beautiful music. I think I have this gift that using, you know, what we learned in this book, I'm going to work on to get even better at to then share music with people that I think will touch them, bring people together uh, and get them maybe even in touch with their emotions or feelings or make them not feel alone. I have something to give. And so they might in some ways look the same to a lot of people. We see them both as a well-known singer, but their intentions can be very different, which I think will have a different impact on their art, but especially have a different impact on them and what they experience. Because if they are going for giving, if they can do that, they will feel good. Unfortunately, when we focus on just taking or getting, we see that it creates this bottomless pit. You never feel fully satisfied when you're just trying to get because you can always get more. You can always get the next best thing and you realize it's not really leading to fulfillment. And so that brings this other idea of which kind of a life should we be striving towards. And unfortunately, the recipe we have, which is based on this notion of success that we usually have is that we want to get a lot. So how do you make a lot of money, make people like you become famous? That's how you're going to live a good life. 
But what we find is that what really we should be striving towards isn't this type of uh, feeling that we get, if we, we think we'll get, from getting this fame and attention. What we want to strive towards is living a meaningful life. And so I always say happiness is overrated. Uh, happiness in the sense of feeling good in the moment is overrated. Not that I want you to feel bad, but if we strive for that kind of a life, we actually usually don't li live or lead a meaningful life. But we feel much better if we try to live a meaningful life, meaning we are content a lot of the time. In the sense that if you look at your life, are you going to be content with the life you have lived, or would you want it to be different? And this idea of death and death anxiety has come up a bunch recently. But if we live a life we don't regret, or we have less regrets, we have less death anxiety because we're not as afraid of life being over and losing our chance to doing certain things. Uh, but when we look at a meaningful life, what are the things that make life meaningful? Well, one thing is the relationships that we have and the people we are genuinely close to. And relationships doesn't mean how many followers do you have. It means how many people do you feel close and connected to? What is the quality of your relationships? What is the emotional intimacy that you experience in your life and the support that you have in your life? That's what we want to strive towards. Another thing that can make us content and live a meaningful life is, as I've talked about, what are you giving to the world? How are you making the world a better place? How are you fighting injustice, seeing who is being discriminated or oppressed in the world and making their life better? This makes us feel that our time has been worthwhile, our experiences have been meaningful, and this is what makes you feel good is when we are giving to others. Now, of course, when I say giving to others, this doesn't mean you sacrifice yourself. You still have to take care of yourself as well. You deserve that, and that's going to make you feel good. But you can take care of yourself while taking care of others. Not only that, the better you take care of yourself, the better you can take care of others as well. So it is a type of a win-win when we make sure we are okay, we can do more to help others. Uh, the classic example for something like this is when you're on a plane. So we've maybe haven't been on a plane lately with COVID or anyway, maybe it hasn't been a while for you. But one of the things we, when we get the safety instructions, they say in case of a emergency or change in um, air pressure, oxygen masks will come from the ceiling or the whatever they say from the plane. And, um, but what do they say if you're with a kid? They say, put it on yourself first and then on your child, which I think is important. The reason why they probably say that is because an instinct of a parent is my child might not be breathing. Let me make sure they're okay. But they know that the problem could be is what if in the attempt of trying to make sure your child is okay, because you're not okay, you pass out or whatever happens to you. And now you're not there to take care of your kid. So you actually have to counteract that instinct of going to your kid first. They be like, okay, no, first I have to make sure I'm okay. Now I can take care of my child. I even think of this kind of in a more dramatic example. Sometimes we have this mindset, you know, the kind of like the martyr mindset that I'm going to sacrifice myself for everyone else because I'm such a good person. So uh, unfortunately, when we do this, we don't realize that if we don't take care of ourselves, what's going to end up happening is people will have to take care of us. And sadly, we see this a lot in all families, but in Iranian families, we see this a lot, both parents, but even more stereotypically you'll often see the mother mindset is that 
you should not do anything for yourself, only for your kids. But a lot of times you'll see the kids don't feel good when they see the mom is suffering, is not taking care of themselves, doesn't feel good. And unfortunately, when we adopt this mindset, we think the more I'm suffering, the more I'm loving my kids. The more I'm in pain, the more I'm loving my kids. But that's actually a very selfish mindset because you're hurting yourself to make yourself feel good or you're almost exaggerating your hurt at times so that you feel good about yourself, but it's actually making your kids feel bad. And unfortunately, they might also either learn from you to be that way or be afraid of giving in some ways that that doesn't actually help them, which is a problem. But going back to the plane example, the same mindset, okay, the, the oxygen masks drop and someone thinks I'm such a helpful person. I'm not going to put a mask on myself. I'm going to run around and put masks on everyone and make sure they're okay. Well, you might get to two or three people, but then you're going to pass out. And as I was just saying, now everyone has to take care of you because you're passed out in the middle of the aisle and they have to probably pick you up and find your seat again and put this mask on you. You've actually created more problems than you've actually helped by trying to do that. But if you put your mask on first, now you can theoretically take care of the whole plane because you are okay. So when I talk about how much do you give, it also means taking care of yourself. First, you deserve it because if we think others are worth taking care of, you're a human being too. And so first you need to love and take care of yourself. But even still, the more we develop our strength, our ability to take care of ourselves in different ways, develop skills, the more we can help others. The doctor who is studying she is adding to her knowledge, which feels good, but she's adding to her knowledge so now she can help other people even more. It's not just because I want to know. And that's unfortunately another way that we have some of these things backwards is we think being strong is for me to feel good and so I can get things. Oh, I'm strong, so people should be afraid of me, or I'm knowledgeable, so people should just give me respect and bow to me. But no, we should be developing our strengths, our skills, so that actually we can help people even more. Oh, good. I am strong enough to carry my child in my arms. That's why I want to be strong enough, not to hurt someone or someone is afraid of me. Oh, good. I've developed this skill singing, let's say, not because I want everyone to give me attention and love. Hopefully I can sing and it will touch people's hearts and it'll make them feel good. So taking care of ourselves is an act of love that we deserve and we should love and take care of ourselves. But the good thing is that if we actually take care of ourselves and love ourselves and build ourselves up, then we can actually take care of others better as well. Whatever your skills, abilities are, we could put them in this type of a, a mindset that I get to be better, which feels good. Of course, you're still, you're going to feel good. I'm not saying don't feel good when you get good at something. It will feel good and as it should, but hopefully you'll also be like, this is so great. I can help others more. You're a teacher. Okay. I want to get even better at educating my kids that, that are my class, um, loving them, making them feel good. So I want to be a better teacher. I'm going to feel good when I'm a better teacher, but the kids will also get the benefit. Um, you know, I'm reading a book by a neuroscientist. I'm going to, if you're a neuroscientist, you're studying things about the brain that of course you want to learn and get your name published, but you also know that the advancements that you make can help all of humankind. And that's a wonderful thing. So it would be a wonderful thing if we all thought about it in this way, that I want to be the best version of myself for myself first, but also I'm going to do even more to help the world. And as the book talked about, just imagine there are so many people out there waiting for your gift 
waiting for whatever it is that you can share, whatever is uniquely you that you could bring to this world. And it would be selfish for you to hold that back. And in a way, it would be selfish for you to not develop that skill and that ability to the best that you can to then share it with the world in the best way. Again, imagine you're creating a medicine that can help people. And you're like, oh, you know, maybe I shouldn't work on it that hard. Everything you don't do to make that medicine the best that it can be, in a way we can say that's taking away from the health and the life of other people. So we all have a duty and obligation both to ourselves and to the world to become the best, most skilled version of ourselves to help feel good first, but also to help the world. And I hope we can recognize that when we think about success, both in ourselves and when we look to others, don't look at what they are getting or don't think about what they are getting. Focus on what is it that they are giving to the world? What is it they've contributed? The most successful person is the person who's given the most to the world, not the one who has the most money and is on the Forbes list. They're the ones that has given the most fully of themselves. We could say we don't want to compare one another, but we should all strive to give the the most that we can to this world. And in that sense, we'll feel that level of success, but also feel fulfilled and feel that we've lived a meaningful life. All right, we've gone to the end of tonight's show. A big thank you to Farhuda here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Farid Alak. We have a wonderful night. Thank mm-hmm. you.